Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 166 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing our series on the life of Jacob with our scholar-in-residence, James Jordan. In this talk, he's going to be dealing with Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 through 34, and along the way, he's going to discuss some interesting things in the text, such as some puns that are in the sounds and words of the passage, as well as the genealogy and numerology of Jacob's ancestors. We hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this time of teaching from James Jordan, and as always, thank you so much for listening. Today, we are going to try to deal with chapter 25, verses 19 to 34, and we're going to start with verses 19 to 28, and this is on page 115 of the Fox translation, and I'll read it out loud. And these are the beginnings of Yitzchak, son of Abraham. Abraham begot Yitzchak. Yitzchak was 40 years old when he took Rivkah, daughter of Bedouel, the Aramean, from the country of Aram, sister of Levan, the Aramean for himself as a wife. Yitzchak entreated Yahweh on behalf of his wife, for she was barren, and Yahweh granted his entreaty. If you're looking at it, you'll see that that is actually one word in Hebrew. Entreaty granting. So he's got it hyphenated so that you can see that. And that's helpful. Yahweh, Yitzchak entreated Yahweh. Yahweh granted his entreaty. Same word. Rivkah's wife became pregnant. And the children clashed one another inside of her. We'll come back to that. And she said, If this be so, why do I exist? And she went to inquire of Yahweh. And Yahweh said to her, Two nations are in your body, two tribes from your belly shall be divided. Tribe shall be mightier than tribe, the elder shall be servant to younger. And her days were fulfilled for bearing. Behold, twins were in her body. The first one came out red, ruddy, like a hairy mantle all over. They called his name Asav, rough one. After that, his brother came out, his hand grasping Asav's heel. So they called his name Yaakov, heel holder, or really just heel. Yitzchak was 60 years old when she bore them. The lads grew up. Asav became a man who knew the hunt, a man of the field. But Yaakov was a perfect man, staying among the tents. Yitzhak grew to love Esau, for he hunted game for his mouth. But Rivkah loved Yaakov. Let's look at some of the things that are here. First of all, as we start into this, I'd like to give you a few genealogical thoughts because the genealogy in the early chapters of Genesis is very significant numerologically. If you were to make a study, as I have, of Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, where you have the years of how long the various patriarchs lived. Methuselah lived 165 years and begat Lamech. And after he begat Lamech, he lived 800 and so many years. And so the total number of his years was 969. I don't know if that's exactly right. I think 969 is, but the rest I'm not quite sure of because I'm doing it off the top of my head. But if you look at all those numbers, you'll find every last one of those numbers factors into fives and sevens. And five and seven become five and seven, and therefore ten 
and 12 become important numbers. 5 plus 7 is 12. 5 plus 5 is 10. Those numbers are all over in the background, and they indicate to us... So look at these genealogies. So I want you to look at them and consider this list of names. First of all, we find that Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, daughter of Bethel, the Aramean, from the country of Aram, sister of Laban, the Aramean. Well, these people were not Arameans by genealogy, but by geography. They were actually descendants of Shem through Arpach's head, the same as Isaac was. But they are from the country of Aram. Genesis 10, 22-23 says, The sons of Shem are Elam and Asher and Arpaxhad and Lud and Aram. And the sons of Aram are Uz and Hul, Gether and Mash. Uz. Job is from the land of Uz. Job is an Aramean. Job is a descendant of Shem through Aram. But now, Arpachshad begot Shelah, Shelah begot Eber, and so forth, on down to these people. So, by genealogy, Bethuel and Laban are descendants of Arpachshad, but in terms of where they live, they live in the land of Aram. And Aram is also called Aram of the Double River. And where did we say that was? What's the Double River? Tigris and Euphrates. So that's where they are. That's the area. And also, of course, that's where Abraham was. He was living in the land of Aram. And so you remember from Deuteronomy, they were to confess, my father was a wandering Aramean. He wasn't by genealogy an Aramean, but they wandered around in the land of Aram until they came to the land that God gave them. So that's where this Aram is and where it comes from and what it means now, in terms of actual genealogy, it's useful to notice this. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, he is the father of Methuselah. Methuselah is the father of Lamech, Noah, Shem, Arpaxas, Shelah, and Eber, which is where we get the word Hebrew. He is the eighth from Enoch, who is the seventh from Adam. These are always inclusive. So if you start with Enoch as one, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. With Eber, you get a new start and a new name. Enoch is seventh from Adam. Heber is eighth from Enoch, fourteenth from Adam. We get a new name. Now people are called Hebrews who come from him. There are two groups of Hebrews, the Joktanites and the Pelagites. What happened to the Joktanites? Joktan had thirteen sons. And in Genesis 10, right at the end, it says Joktan and his thirteen sons were moving east. What they do when they moved east? The chapter break is what kills you. Chapter 11, 1 says, As they journeyed east, they came to the plain of Shinar, which is Aram of the Double River, and there they built the Tower of Babel. The Joktanites joined forces with Nimrod to build the Tower of Babel, and so they're the fallen Hebrews. And the true Hebrews then come through Peleg, the other son of Eber, Hebrews. Remember what we saw last week? The wicked always seem to get their lots of kids first. Well, not necessarily the wicked, but the other people. Nahor has 12 kids. Abraham's got one. Ishmael has 12 kids. Isaac has, well, really just one. Finally, Jacob has 12 kids. And even way back before that, Joktan has 13 kids. But they all fall away at the Tower of Babel. 
with Peleg, the other son of Eber. We only know of one child of his named Reu. What happened in the days of Peleg? The earth was divided. The Tower of Babel happened in his days. Now, some people want to say that means continental drift. It may, it may be that when God changed the languages, he also divided up the continents. But in the context of Genesis, it's talking about the division of religion and tongues, of lip and the vocabulary that happened at Babel in the days of Pele. Then his son is Reu and Sarug and Nahor and Terah and Abraham. Now, Abraham is the seventh from Eber. That's why Abraham is called the Hebrew. Abram the Hebrew takes on a pregnant meaning. I mean, this guy is the seventh. Just as Enoch was the seventh from Adam and walked with God, so Abram is the seventh from Eber. If you want to know what a true Hebrew is, you look at Abram, and he's called Abram the Hebrew numerous times. He is twelfth from Lamech, and this is, I think, pretty important. Lamech is the father of Noah, but remember, not just the father. I mean, all these guys are fathers, so what? But Lamech prophesies about his son Noah and he says and this is in chapter 5 verse 28 when Lamech had lived 82 years and 100 years he begot a son he called his name Noah saying which is where the word Noah comes from may this one comfort our sorrow from our toil from the pains of our hands coming from the soil which Yahweh has damned <laughs> or cursed Noah, the one who brings comfort and rest. Well, Abram is related numerologically to Lamech. He's the twelve. You got Lamech, you got Abe, you got Noah, and you've got Isaac. And Noah is the bringer of rest who ends the curse. And what is Isaac? Well, Abraham expects Isaac to be that person, the messianic person. And he takes him up on the mountain to sacrifice him. Not just that. What did Noah deal with? There was a flood. And after the flood came rest. Now we're going to see next week, I hope, in chapter 26, that the same themes show up in the Isaac story. Isaac is in the land of Philistia and he digs a well and they stop up the well. And he digs another well and they fight him over the well. He digs another well and they fight him over the well. Finally he digs a well at Beersheba and they leave him alone, and he says, at last we've found rest here with this well. So the water rest theme shows up again with Isaac, and I think because God recapitulates history, and that's part of the theme. Isaac is a new Noah in a sense. In another sense, too. What happened after the flood? Noah is in the tent. He's asleep, and his sons get into a thing. And one of the sons goes into the tent, says, hey, daddy's in the tent and he got so warm he's uncovered himself. The other two go in and cover him up. Now, does something similar to that happen with Isaac? Something similar. Isaac is old, he's blind, he's in the tent, he's got two sons, one goes in and tricks him. There's enough parallel there to see that Isaac's life is kind of shadowing out the same things that happened in Noah's life. So there is that relationship there. Abram is a father of a new Noah. Finally, Abram is the 14th from Enoch. Enoch walked with God. Abram walked with God. Said many times that Abram is the guy that walked with God. So, there again, the numerology in this text gives you this. I mean, look at these other names. What do you know about Sarug? <laughs> Nothing. 
The only thing we know about Methuselah is he lived longer than anybody else. The Bible doesn't call attention to that, but we can see it from the numbers. And the significant names in here are positioned by God and his superintendents of history to show up at significant times. Isaac is the eighth son of Eber, that is, as if he were the son of Eber. In Peleg's day, the earth was divided. In Isaac's day, the earth is divided. He is the seventh from Peleg, the son of Eber. Isaac, the world is divided. He has two sons. One God loves, the other one God hates. Now that is the perfect and absolute fullness of division. These two sons, Jacob and Esau, are the perfect models in the Bible of the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, of the one God loves and who loves God, and the one God hates. We will see that Esau commits every sin that has already happened in Genesis. He goes for forbidden food. He tries to murder his brother. He intermarries with the wicked women. He wants to drink blood. He's just like Nimrod, a mighty hunter. Every person earlier in Genesis who has been pictured as a great sinner, they all roll together on Esau. You want to talk about dividing the earth, this is a perfect division. Of course, the problem is Jacob is usually made out to be the bad guy, but the first thing we read about Jacob is that he's perfect, which I think has got to cover everything else. Jacob is the wise man dealing with satanic oppressors in a wise way and giving information to later generations and to us and how to do it. How do you deal with a tyrant? You deceive him. There's nothing wrong with lying to a tyrant. When they come knocking to your door and say, do you have any Jews hidden here? You say, Jews? What Jews? You lie and you deceive to protect the innocent from the wicked tyrant. And that is the deceptions that take place in this story are along those lines, as we'll see. So you got, uh, if Isaac is another Peleg, and he is, it's because the earth is divided in his day. Really divided between these two sons. The perfection of evil and the perfection of good, in a sense. Uh-huh. God actually puts a lie in Samuel's mouth to tell Saul when he goes up to anoint David. So that's one of the numerous examples of appropriate deception. The ninth commandment doesn't say you must never lie. It says don't ever use your mouth to harm your neighbor. It's not wrong to put out disinformation in wartime or in dealing with a tyrant, and especially in dealing with a tyrant. And the Hebrew midwives lied to Pharaoh about the kids, and Saul is a tyrant. Now that's an important thing. So, good example. And we'll be coming back and kind of explore that whole theme a little bit in more detail, because particularly the woman who does it. Eye for eye and tooth for tooth is the basic standard. Satan deceived Eve, so what does Eve do? She is the deceiver. So, it's Rahab the harlot who deceives. It's Jael who deceives. It's the midwives who deceives. It's Rebecca who deceives. It's primarily the woman who deceives Satan because Satan deceived the woman. And that's an important aspect of it. And women are in the weaker position. So, the tyrant wants to come and rape all the women. The women lie to him. Say, hey, we've all got VD. You sure you want to rape us? Lie. <laughs> Finally, Isaac is the twelfth from Noah, and we've already explored that a little bit, that there are shadow recapitulations of Noah's life in Isaac's life. And just as Noah's sons, some were righteous and some... Remember, what was Ham trying to do? 
He goes in and says Father doesn't have his robe on. He's suggesting that they take his robe and go ahead and make themselves the, the leaders. And that's why the other two sons, they back up and put the robe back on Noah. The whole thing is about the robe of authority. Well, does something similar to that happen with Isaac? Well, in a way it does, in an inverted kind of a way. And it happens again with Jacob as Jacob's sons try to take his robe. Reuben sleeps with Jacob's concubine, which is a way of trying to take over Jacob's position. Well, Jacob is the eighth from Peleg, in whose days the earth was divided, and so we have another division in Jacob's day, and of course that gives us twelve tribes. And he's a twelfth from Shem. Shem is the one who carries the name. Remember that Shem means name, and Shem is of the three sons, the one who is going to be the priestly son. And we have this priestly son, Shem. Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. Jacob will dwell in his tents. And the Shemites are here, and then they're narrowed down to the Eberites, and then they're narrowed down to the Israelites. So these are all words. What word do we get from Shem? Yeah, Shemites, or more commonly, Semites. Whether you say Shibboleth or Sibboleth, or you say Shemite or Semite. Then from this we get Hebrews, from this we get Israelites. So there's this narrowing down of the people who are called to be a priestly people and to carry the name of God. Shem means name. And after the Tower of Babel, the Tower of Babel, they said, let's make a name for ourselves. And when God called Abram, he says, I'm going to make you a name. You don't need to make yourself a name. I'll make you one. So Jacob then becomes Israel. And the Semites, who have been called Hebrews, now start being called Israelites after Jacob's name is changed. So the numerology here in the structure is important, and I think it helps you get an idea of why these names show the way they do. Were there any extra people in here that the Bible doesn't mention? Well, there might be. And if you read that so-and-so was 120 years old and he gave birth to this son, he might have had some others. There might have been a generation or two in between. The chronology of time is unquestionable. But the names in the list are the ones that are important. And whether these are actually the sons of or begat can mean, beget can mean grandfather or great-grandfather, doesn't matter. God superintends history in such a way that these numbers come out. It's no accident in Matthew chapter 1 that by dropping a couple of names out of the list, Matthew gives us 14 generations from Abraham to David and 14 to Solomon and then 14 to the exile, and then 14 to Jesus. That's lunar. From the new moon to the full moon in the Davidic monarchy, and then waning down to the dark of the moon at the exile, and then coming up to the full moon in the days of Jesus. Luke gives us 77 generations from God, the father of Adam, on down to Jesus. Arranged in nice little groups. Two times seven, three times seven. Very skilled out. God has arranged things so that they can come out this way. And it's an aspect of the Word that we want to take note of as we get into this. Now, the birth of Jacob, chapter 25, verses 21 to 28. First of all, the barren bride theme, something we've mentioned numerous times. We'll touch on it again. Yitzchak, Isaac, entreated Yahweh on behalf of his wife, for she was barren. Oh, another barren wife. Sarah was barren. Why are the women barren? Gosh, it just kind of happened that way. 
What did God say in Genesis 3? Who's going to save the world? The seed of the woman. Remember, seed is vegetable terminology from Genesis 1. The blossom of the woman. Don't think of it in terms of modern biology where men have seeds and women have eggs. It's got nothing to do with that. It means the offspring, the flowering of the woman. And you can offspring of the man, seed. The seed of the woman. The woman's barren. Why? Because of the curse. In difficulty when you give birth to children, it says. That's the judgment, not a curse. It's true physically that most women experience difficulty in childbearing. But far more importantly is the fact that, for well, two things. One is that women used to die frequently in childbearing. That's multiplying sorrows in childbearing. It happens in the Bible. It happens when Benjamin is born. It doesn't happen so much anymore. It's rare. It used to be pretty common. And secondly is the fact that, biblically speaking, so many of these women can't even have kids. They want to have kids. They can't have kids. You talk about difficulty in childbearing, there's another aspect of it. And another one, what's another difficulty in childbearing that comes up in Leviticus? The woman becomes unclean when she has a child. She's unclean for 80 days. And that gets cut in half if the child is a boy and gets circumcised. Otherwise, she has to stay away from religious meetings for 80 days. So there are various aspects of the difficulty of childbearing, and this is one of them that God says the Messiah is going to come through the woman, and then when God sets aside a woman and says, okay, you're in the seed line, you're married to the patriarch, the Messiah is going to come through you. Maybe your child, maybe a descendant, but he's going to come through you. All of a sudden, the woman's barren. And God has to rear back and pass a miracle, as it says in the green pastures. The Lord's going to rear back and pass a miracle to make it happen. It happens to Sarah, Rebecca, and who's next? The next barren woman. Rachel, the very next one in line. And then who else? The three Nazarite mothers. Samuel's mother, the wife of Manoah, Samson's mother, and Samson, Samuel, and who's the other permanent Nazarite in the Bible? John the Baptist. Some of these women were not only barren, they were also way too old. That's six. Now what's the seventh and climactic form of this theme, of course? It's the virgin birth. So, that's the theme. You want to take notice of it here is why it's happening. Then we have two seeds struggling within the woman. Verse 22, this says the children almost crushed one another inside of her. That would leave you the idea that, well, we just got these two kids in there and as they both grow, they're smashing against each other. But I wish he had translated the children clashed inside her is what some of the other commentators give as a better rendering of the Hebrew, because they are fighting. It's definitely implied here, not that they're just two babies and they're smushing, but you know babies kick and struggle even when you just got one. What they used to call quickening, when the woman begins to feel the baby kick. Now we got two of them kicking against each other inside there. They are clashing in the womb, they're fighting in the womb, and the word implies violence. What does that go back to? It goes back to Genesis 3. We got two seeds. We got the seed of the woman. We got the seed of the serpent. How does the serpent have seed? Only through the woman. Angels don't multiply. Satan doesn't have any literal children. It's spiritual children that are spoken of there. The seed of the woman is the spiritually right seed. And the seed of the serpent is the spiritually wrong seed. They all come biologically from the woman. But when it says the seed of the woman, it's not primarily biology that's in view. 
it's the spirit that's in view. God says, the true seed, the true offspring of Eve will be the righteous. Which is kind of important. We think, well, Eve, she's a sinner, so her offspring would be the wicked. No, that's not the way God positions it. He positions it that Adam and Eve are saved. And the true offspring of Eve will be the righteous, and the others will be the wicked. So what happens? Eve has two kids. One of them is the seed of the woman. One of them is the seed of the serpent. Abel is the seed of the woman. Cain is the seed of the serpent. And it comes up again here. I think if you have twins, there's always going to be more kicking. (laughs) But God has written this so that we see that even inside the womb, you've got two different boys. And the implication is that the struggling and fighting that they're going to do in life has already started in the womb. Which also implies that Jacob is regarded as a righteous man from the womb. It's hard for us to understand the self-consciousness of babies, but we know that babies are self-conscious to some degree because John the Baptist leaped for joy in the womb, it says. So, I don't remember what it's like to be a baby. I don't remember what it's like to be in the womb and what kind of self-consciousness I had at that point, but the Bible tells me that I was self-aware and I could know who God is. And I think we're supposed to understand here that Jacob knew who God was in the womb and Esau rejected God in the womb. It started there, right at the very beginning, predestinated. The woman then, her children. And one other thing I wanted to add was, because this will come up, and I guess not this week, it's taken longer than I thought, but then... Why not just take our time with it? We have the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the woman is the righteous. And the seed of the serpent is the wicked. They both come from a female who's been with a man. Also, what is man made out of? Dust. Cursed is the dust for your sake. And from now on, the dust is going to give rise to good plants, which are, according to Genesis 3, they're grains and trees, and it's going to give rise to thorns and thistles. And that's why in the Bible, the wicked are considered to be thorns and thistles, and the righteous are considered to be bread and good trees. If you read the parable of Jotham in Judges chapter 9, you'll see that. Jotham has this parable, and he says, Who wants to rule over everybody? And the vine says, well, I don't want to rule over people. I just want to make grapes. I'm happy. And the apricot says, I don't want to rule over people. I just like making apricots. And the cedar says, hey, I don't want to rule over people. I just like being a sweet-smelling cedar. So then he goes to the bramble bush and says, would you like to be the king? He says, oh, yeah, man. I'd like to dominate other people. I'd like to be in charge. So the wicked and the righteous. So Cain is a thorn coming out of the soil of the human body. And Abel is a tree, trees and thorns. Same thing here, and we'll see it comes up when Esau is described as a man of the field, because these are the plants of the field. Thorns and thistles are the plants of the field. And Esau is a man of the field means he's a thorn. And Jacob, who stays at home and takes care of the crops, he's one of the productive trees, not one of the painful trees. So, two seeds struggle within the woman. Out of the woman will come the seed, and within the woman, the womb of the earth, the womb of humanity, these two seeds are struggling. 
Another thing I want to note here, probably doesn't need to be mentioned to you all, but people are always saying odd things. Note that when Isaac prayed for Rebekah, she did not have to go through her husband to inquire of Yahweh later on. Verse 21, Isaac entreated Yahweh on behalf of his wife. So, as we pray for one another, this is an example. Yahweh granted his entreaty, and Rebekah, his wife, became pregnant. But then when they were fighting, she says, If this be so, why do I exist? Why should I live if this is going on? This is very difficult to interpret. I'll give you a thought on it in a moment. But then it says she went to inquire of Yahweh. It doesn't say she went to her husband and said, I know that I'm not allowed to pray to God on my own behalf. Since you're the head of the house, would you pray to God for me? No, it says she went to inquire of Yahweh. Now this expression, go to inquire of the Lord, everywhere in the Bible means go to a prophet or a priest or somebody. It's possible that she went out under the starry sky and said, Lord, what's going on? And the angel of the Lord appeared to her and told her these things. That's possible. But it's much more likely she went to Abraham, who was a prophet, or to Eber. Eber was still alive. You know that? Look at the chronology. Old Eber, the father of the Hebrews, he's still alive at this point in history. He's alive for another 60 years, as I recall. It's always hard to recall the exact numbers right off the top of your head, but he's still alive. Abraham is still alive. Probably she just got on the phone and said, Father Abraham, what's going on here? And she got this answer. Two nations are in your body. Two tribes from your belly shall be divided and so forth. So I just want to point out that she could go on her own to inquire the Lord. She doesn't have to go through her husband, as some people want to say, that kind of thing nowadays. She says, in verse 22, If this be so, why do I exist? You can take that in the plainest sense, like, I am tired of this, I wish I were dead. This is so painful. I don't think quite that's why it's going on. If this is so, why do I exist? I think what we have to see is, and this has already been set up in the previous chapter, Rebecca is the one who wants to be the mother of the seed. She loves the Lord. She converts. She's a new Abraham. She's looking forward to being in the covenant. And now she finds that there's all this conflict inside of herself where she thought that she was going to be in the kingdom and have something to do with bringing in the kingdom. And she says, why do I exist as the wife of Isaac, who is the son of Abraham, and this is the line through which the Messiah is going to come? Why am I here as the mother of the messianic line, if this is what's going on. Maybe I've always been wrong about this. If there's going to be this kind of conflict, if the one who's inside of me, who's, I would assume, going to be the one for whom the Messiah comes, might even be the Messiah. They never know from one generation to another. Their son might be the Messiah. If this is going on, why do I exist? What is my position here? She's questioning her role in other words. And God gives her an answer and tells her that she's going to have two kids and they're going to switch places. Now, before we close, we'll look at a couple of puns here in this and then we'll have to stop. Verse 23, Yahweh said to her, Two nations are in your body. Two tribes from your belly shall be divided. Tribe shall be mightier than tribe. Elder shall be Yabor to younger. 
There's a couple of puns here. Ya'abor. The elder shall be Ya'abor to, that is, servant, Ya'abor, to Sa'ir, the younger. Now both of those are sounds that show up in the stories. The name Jacob in Hebrew is Ya'akov. And originally, Jacob, Ya'akov, would be servant, Ya'abor, to his older brother. But that's going to change. Instead, Esau will be Ya'abor, servant. The way it would originally be, Ya'akov would be Ya'abor, servant. But that's going to change places. The younger is the word Seir, but Esau is going to be called Seir. Almost exactly the same word except for a different S sound. Seir, Seir. Younger is Seir, but Esau will be Seir, again changing places. So there are hints already, if we could hear this out loud in Hebrew, and none of us can do it, I can't do it, I mean I don't know Hebrew that well. But talking about the way this sounds and what we would pick up, what God intends for us to pick up, is that already in the sounds of these words, the elder shall be Jacob to the younger. The elder shall be servant, Yavor, like Jacob, to the younger, Seir. Originally Jacob was Seir, Esau became Seir, the younger. So these are replaced. Now this gives us the old firstborn replacement theme in the Bible. And why is the firstborn replaced? Almost without exception, the firstborn son is never the heir. And except in the law, the firstborn is supposed to be the heir. Once God set things up in Israel, he said the firstborn son will receive a double portion. In other words, you've got this property, the Jubilee property. Everybody has this plot of land. You have three sons, you divide this plot up into four parts, and you give two parts to your firstborn son. And then the other two sons receive a quarter each. And the firstborn receives two quarters or one half. Why? Well, it's because it's his responsibility to take care of his parents. He needs more for that purpose. He carries on the family name, so to speak. We saw earlier that Abraham gave presents to his other sons, but all he had he gave to Isaac. Treats Isaac as firstborn. This is before the law and before they had this special property rule. He gives the inheritance to his firstborn who maintains it. Now, this is a form of primogeniture, the bad form of primogeniture that you have in pagan societies and you had it in Europe was where everything went to the firstborn son and the other sons wound up with nothing. But in the Bible, there's a much weaker form of giving everything to the firstborn. You give significantly more to him because it's his responsibility to maintain the parents and to maintain certain things, but the other sons are also set up. Well, that's the rule, except the firstborn keeps being set aside. When it comes to Cain and Abel... Cain is set aside, Abel's killed, Seth replaces him. When it comes to Noah, Japheth is firstborn, he's set aside for Shem. When it comes to Terah, Haran is firstborn, he's set aside for Abraham. Ishmael is firstborn, he's set aside for Isaac. Esau is firstborn, he's set aside for Jacob. What's next? Joseph's older brothers are set aside for him. What's next? Joseph's two sons. Ephraim and Manasseh, they're switched. Moses and Aaron, they're switched. Aaron was older than Moses. 
David, the youngest, he switched. David's sons, they're switched. Solomon inherits, not Adonijah. On and on and on it goes. Why? Because the first Adam sinned and the younger brother, Jesus, is going to be the Messiah. And that's the meaning. The firstborn, who is supposed to be given everything, as Adam was, Adam was given everything, they keep blowing it. The result is, the younger brother gets it. Now, what does that mean for today? Absolutely nothing. We're not under any rule to give everything to our firstborn sons or to replace the firstborn with the younger or anything like that. This is all symbolic theology in the Bible. It's been fulfilled with Jesus, and that's the end of it in terms of trying to figure out, well, this is what I've got to do. I've got to do this or I've got to do If parents want to say to one of their children, I'm going to give you twice as much, how did you take care of us in our old age? That's fine. Do what you want. But we're not under any rules like that because it's one of the typological things that's been fulfilled in Jesus. But we have it here, the replacement of the firstborn, and I wanted to show it to you. Next week, we will come back to this. We will look at some of the specific things here and continue on. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm